Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Joseph F. Johnston. He's a lawyer. Uh, he was a visiting lecturer at University of Virginia Law School for a time. He was the author of, is the author of The Limits of Government. He has a new book out, which I think is very important and very timely. It is entitled The Decline of Nations, Lessons for Strengthening America at Home and in the World, our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Johnson. Yes, thank you very much, Mark. Good to be with you. Well, let's jump right into the book. Uh, your topic is Decline. And you begin by going back to a, uh, a person, a thinker named Khaldun. Who was he? Well, it, and what Ibn did he Khal, say? Ibn Khaldun was a 14th century philosopher who was in, uh, I believe he, he worked out of Egypt. He was a specialist in Arabian uh, studies, but he was fully familiar with the the Greek and Roman classics, and and he developed a very interesting theory of history, which I use as a starting point in my book. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called the Mukadima, which was uh, a book on on the philosophy of history, which sets forth a model of decline that's been quite influential and was uh, very influential as far as I was concerned. And in this theory. Uh, Ibn Khaldun sets forth a, a, a theory of how nations, successful nations, begin. And they begin with uh, a, a tribe coming in out of the desert and forming a civilization. And they were tough, they were hardy, uh, they uh, were patriotic, they had what he called uh, group feeling, uh, I've forgotten the Arabic term for it, which is often translated as patriotism or public spirit. Mm -hmm. And a successful society produces cities which are the seats of, the, of civilization. And they are particularly strong in not only militarily, but in business and commercial activities. Now, they're, at the beginning, they're tough and strong and hardy, and eventually, however, a successful society becomes addicted to abundance, leisure, and luxury. Members of the tribe lose their vigor and hardiness. Hmm. Uh, their military discipline evaporates, and, and the group feeling begins to wane. The population works less and demands increased benefits from the rulers, who impose higher taxes and incur more debt. And finally, and this is a quote from Ibn Khaldun, quote, civilization is destroyed because the incentive for cultural activity is gone. 
close quote. And sooner or later, uh, the feeble and undisciplined society collapses and is swallowed up by a hardier and more vigorous tribe. Hmm. And that's sort of a, a rough model uh, no. of what I think is happening today. I was going to say, uh, how closely do you see, maybe this is the impetus for the book, how closely do you see 21st century United States fitting his description? Well, some of the, some of the things that Ibn Khaldun talked about are happening. I mean, for example, there is a breakdown in the rule of law. We have violence in our cities, violent crime. Uh, our borders are no longer enforced. There's a fiscal breakdown, huge expenditure, deficits, $30 trillion in, in government debt. There's a moral breakdown. Uh, the, the American values on which this country are founded are changing. I mean, Americans used to rate hard work, patriotism, commitment, religion, and, and uh, having children and those types of old-fashioned virtues, now they are beginning to disappear. Now, I, I, I share your outlook on this, and I, and I see things going on, and, you know, one of the first questions I asked after saying, well, what the heck is going on here, is, uh, Joe, what do the elite... What do the people in power think is going on? Are they blind to what is going on? Do they live in a bubble so much they don't realize what is going on? Or do they just believe they can weather it uh, and that their positions will remain secure? What, what would you say about the, again, well, the elite, a, the people a, in power? That's a great question, uh, Mark. And I talk about this in the book in my Chapter 7 on society. I, I talk about the elites. The elite in this country has changed. We formerly had in the 19th century what we, some people have called a bourgeois elite, which was based on business and commerce and also agriculture, uh, in, in which uh, you had certain moral values of hard work, thrift, savings, and so forth. And those, those virtues were enforced socially and kids were brought up to believe and to be patriotic and to be religious, to go to church. You had strong families, strong communities, and the like. And that began to change in the 20th century with progressivism. More and more you had an elite that valued uh, the values of expertise, knowledge, and the, whole, the university climate changed from... Uh, a climate in which the classics were studied and and there was hard work and discipline and, and, and were required unto an elite that values not so much the old-fashioned bourgeois values, uh, but, but more what I would call Hollywood values. Uh, thrift, hard work, and self-control went by the boards and uh, now you have the, the values now are the values of the welfare state, welfare over work, uh, pay people not to work. More and more people are dependent on government. 
religion is beginning to to disappear. I wouldn't say disappear. That's too strong. But it's waning. And you have massive increases in the size of government, massive government spending, and a culture of dependence uh, rather than a culture of of uh, of family values, good manners, respect, discipline, and patriotism. That does. My question did jump ahead to the the cultural elite sections near the end of your book, and we'll we'll, we'll get to those. Let's let's go back to the beginning, chapter one, Rome. Yeah. Does uh, Rome? Does the decline and fall of Rome? Uh, offer us uh, serious lessons. I think for today? so. I think so, Mark. Rome was the Roman Republic was founded with values similar to the values of the American founding. There was strong patriotism, a sense of civic duty. They were highly disciplined. Uh, of course, they had a strong military. But then, the in later on after the. Roman Republic declined, which happened at the end of the first century B.C. and and during the second century, uh, you had more and more of of an imperial climate. Eventually, of course, you had Julius Caesar and Augustus, and it turned into an empire rather than a republic. And they became uh, overextended, vastly overextended. The late empire in Rome grew into an over-centralized bureaucratic government ruled by swarms of bureaucrats and officials. And if that sounds familiar, it is. And uh, they could no longer defend the overextended frontiers, and they were eventually overrun by barbarians, masses of migrants whom they could no longer assimilate and control. And that also sounds familiar. Now, Obviously, we are not in the fix that the Romans were in in the 5th and 6th centuries A.D. yet. But we were, uh, and probably still are, overextended in foreign policy. We engaged in foreign uh, affairs and foreign military adventures, which were unnecessary and were overly expensive such as the Iraq War, I use as an example, and others in which, uh, as the British Empire did, and the, of course the Roman Empire, which we could no, really not afford. And we spent a lot of money, and it cost a lot of lives, and those overextended frontiers uh, sometimes cannot be defended. And that was true of Rome, it was true in Britain, and it, it I th- I'm afraid, has been true in this country. Fortunately, I think there's a reaction against that now. There was certainly a reaction against it in in the Trump administration, and I think today uh, even this administration is no longer quite as aggressively overextended in foreign policy uh, as it was previously. Yeah. Well, but it's something we have to worry about. Is is there any parallel? Remember the old Roman uh, principle of "you fail, you fall on your sword." We don't see the elite failing very much, and then no. departing the uh, departing the scene. Do you? Do we? No, they don't have much of that Roman patriotism. They don't have much of the the Romans. In fact, had a culture of if you did something badly wrong and hurt your country, you would literally fall on your sword. 
Uh, we have we have those those types of, of patriotic values no longer exist. Uh, very 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 few people in this country actually serve in the army, or even know anyone who served in the army. And uh, it's a it's an entirely different culture. It's a it's a yeah. It's it's not a militant culture. It's uh it's a soft culture. You you have a line in here about what happened to the Roman people uh, over time. Uh, you say that they quote abandoned their freedom to tyrants. That's what yeah. that was later Rome. Do do you think you see a parallel here? Are people abandoning their freedom in America? And and what are the what are the signs of that? Well, I think there are there are some signs of that in that uh, Americans are. This country was founded as a federal republic. That is, the states were sovereign. The federal government had limited powers, and that's the way it was intended. And Madison was, and Jefferson and others were very clear on that. They thought that the states would have the, the ultimate police power and that they would serve as a control over the overexpansion of the federal government. Unfortunately, that changed in the in the. 20th century, and we now have this vast federal government that, I mean, at the beginning of the 20th century, the federal government spent maybe 3% of GDP. Now it spends over 30, and with the, if you add in state budgets, it's near 40%, close to European standards. It's a vast, over-bureaucratized, over-centralized government that takes a lot more money than it should. And it is it is dangerous to several liberties. And and the people receiving that largesse, they're willing to. Well, yes. they, they, they they lose their their sense of their own prerogative as sovereign individuals. I mean, they they'll, they'll talk a lot about rights, but they uh, they don't talk much about liberty. That's exactly right. And they don't talk that we they emphasize rights rather than duties and obligations, which was a favorite theme of the founders. George Washington said, "You cannot have a, a, a successful government in a republic without it being a disciplined and moral and religious people." And and uh, that was the mantra. And it, you know, but that has given rise to what we now call the administrative or welfare state, and an enormous increase in government spending and government debt during the last century, and a decline in the rule of law. And those things are are dangerous to to uh, individual liberty. Next, you turn to the British Empire. What were the main ingredients that you find of its rise? The rise, it was a, they had a, a tremendously solid financial structure, which was based on the common law, the rule of law, beginning in, in the, uh, with Magna Carta and going and building up for centuries. You had the growth of parliament as a check on the monarchy, and you had the, the common law system, which is, is the greatest legal system ever devised in the history of the world, in my opinion, which we inherited from the British. Uh, they had a strong sense of patriotism. They had a love of adventure and exploration, 
which led them to uh, conquer and uh, vast colonies in North America and elsewhere. But like Rome, they eventually took on more territory than they could effectively defend. And that, and and eventually they lost their empire. That's the overstretching. Correct. Correct. Well, they, well, they also made the mistake of adopting socialism after World War II, which crippled the British economy. And I can remember when I first started, started. I had a lot of did a lot of business in London. I started going there in the '60s and and in the '70s. You, they called it the the Europeans called it the British disease. And 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 the they were overtaxed, and they had they they had actually nationalized a lot of their industries, and their their economy was was crippled. Now fortunately, that that recovered under Margaret Thatcher. And now Britain is, though it's no longer an empire, it's a it's a relatively strong economy, and that's because they got rid of socialism, and they 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 got rid of the undefendable part of their empire, and now they're a, a, a valid commercial republic, which is what they should be. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You also refer to something during the course of the 19th century that was a, quote, cultural counter-revolution that, that the British Empire underwent. What was that? Well, there was a, a there was a, a, a counter revolution in in the sense that you had a an aristocracy which was interested in empire, but they were also highly disciplined, and they believed in the rule of law, and they were able to prevent the British from going too much beyond. Uh, the limits which they were able to defend against. And, and that aristocracy in Britain worked very well in the 19th century. It was criticized, sure, but it was able to control their overexpansion to some extent. Uh, ultimately, they, they couldn't defend all of all that they had, but uh, they had, they had a, and, and they had a wonderful educational system where they taught civics rigor, discipline, homework, and so forth. Uh, universities and colleges were, were thriving, and, and it, was a, it, it, it was a serious uh, society in the, in the 19th century run by an effective aristocracy, which declined in the 20th century. Uh, you actually go, yeah, you go up through the 20th century, and you find immigration in, British, in the British Isles a factor in its more recent decline. What happened there? Well, it was they they began to 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 open the borders to uh, 
to immigration in the in the late 20th century, and it, it has now they have a you know a serious problem, Islamic problem, and as do the French. But uh, and 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 of course we do too. So the inability to control your borders is is a sign of decadence. Would you interpret, this is to step out of the book a little bit, would you interpret Brexit a, a restoration of something? Do you think that it signifies a resistance to perhaps the overstretching in a different yes. mode that, yes, that, I, that might last? Yeah, I, I mean, I was a, a big supporter of Brexit. Uh, I think that, unfortunately, the European Union turned into a hyper bureaucracy and it still is and and the english had the common sense to see that happening and so uh after they called a referendum the, the british people decided we, we, you know you know we've had enough of that and we want out and we were they were a trading power on their own and now they're returning to that they're easily able to defend themselves to take care of themselves and and to uh manage their their commercial affairs through trade and commerce and treaties without being burdened by an, uh, a hyper bureaucracy in Brussels and they've done that what was They're it the shock that. was it the shock of the two world wars that led uh the, the uh, great britain to give up some of its independence oh yeah yeah particularly world war 1 which was a disaster for england I mean, they absolutely could not afford it, and they were they were crippled economically. They they regained some of that, but but they, they could no longer afford the empire. They had to do something. They had to withdraw, and they did. Uh, and and that was something that was was absolutely necessary. After World War II, they tried to refurbish themselves with with the Labor Party socialism, but that didn't work either. As I, as I said before, it, in fact, it, it destroyed their economy again, and they had to start all over again with a free enterprise market system under Margaret Thatcher, and that, and that worked. Yeah. When, when you turn directly to the United States, you begin with what you call the economic base, that you, you must have an economic base in order to establish this kind of strong national condition well well that's right strong nations depend on a strong economy especially today you have to produce first of all sophisticated and expensive weapons systems if you don't have that you, you you're going to get taken over <laughs> modern weapons are extremely expensive and we we face perhaps the most serious challenge we've ever faced today from the communist china so you've got to be strong and that takes economic strength and we st we are still economically strong, but our strength is being eroded by excessive government, uh, excessive debt, and huge deficit spending in government regulation, and environmental regulation, taxes and bureaucracy, and so on. Uh, Joe, you speak of globalization and national defense, and you uh, do you imply, or maybe maybe say more explicitly, that globalization, a globalist outlook, and a national defense, they can't really coexist very well. Well, global, in globalization, the way it's come to mean is 
is that you're turning part of your sovereignty over to other people. And and that's what the British decided they couldn't do any longer, which is why they uh, decided on Brexit and got out of the European Union. And the same is true, of course, of, of the United Nations and some of these agencies. If you, The more sovereignty you turn over to somebody else, the less control your own people have over, you, over their own destiny. Uh, is there any specific foreign policies that you would point to as uh, particularly damaging? Well, I, I think the, the Iraq War was, and the, our involvement in the Middle East, I mean, it was very expensive. We had to go into Afghanistan after 9-11 to defeat uh, al-Qaeda, and the Taliban, we did that, but we didn't have to stay. And we did stay, and then we got involved in Iraq, and that was enormously expensive. We lost a lot of lives, and and it cost a lot of money, and and that's the sort of thing that we we don't need to do. And we have we still have troops all over the world in 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 place various places, South Korea and Japan and Okinawa and so forth, and and that's that's doable as long as it's as it's manageable from a cost standpoint. Uh, but you, if if it if it gets overexpanded, you not only you, you dissipate your energy and you dissipate your resources. That's what we have to look out for. You, you know, I'll I'll confess, I got a little caught up in the optimism of democratizing the Middle East. Uh, you know, fifteen uh, years ago, you never bought that idea. Well, I I I, I did it first. I mean, it was a nice idea. It was, yeah. uh, you know, Don Rumsfeld was part of that. He's a friend of mine, and I talked to him a lot about this. But it, it was a good idea at first, but then it became obvious that you were fighting against tribal societies, such as Afghanistan, which had, which had always been tribal, always been violent and divisive, and, and always will be. And the British figured that out in the middle of the 19th century. And we had to learn that lesson the hard way ourselves. And now I think we're better off out of the Middle East. Uh, you turn to education in America as a crucial component of maintaining uh, a strong nation. And then you look at the numbers, the data, the outcomes on education, and it, it's a pretty depressing outlook. Uh, yes, it let, is. Let me ask you, in, in your experience teaching, you were in the law school at, at, at Virginia for a time. Uh, did you see a, a decline in just the general knowledge that students were bringing to that very distinguished law school? Well, uh, I, I didn't really see a decline in the law school. It, it, University of Virginia has a good law school. Uh, I went to Harvard Law School, and that's still, I think, a good law school, although it's changed an awful lot. I, in terms of general culture, I did notice that the students were not familiar with what they would have been familiar with when I went to college. In other words, they they didn't know the classics. They didn't know his, as much history. Mm -hmm. And and I in my in my lectures, I tried to introduce a little of that to them. And I talked to my fellow faculty members and. And I, I had damn good students. I mean, they were very alert and very intelligent. 
and the, and the law school there is very good and is, but the general educational status has eroded since the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, students no longer uh, are in my undergraduate school was Princeton, and I read the other day in the Princeton Alumni Weekly that you can major in classics and no longer be required to take either Greek or Latin. No, there's uh, there's a lot going on there that, that <laughs> that's is pretty dismaying. Well, you your your term for this is uh, quote mediocrity enthroned, uh, yes. which suggests that you know this is kind of a, a situation where we're not asking all that much and we're not giving all that much, and everyone is kind of uh, okay with that. Well, when you move away from excellence as the goal then you have mediocrity. I mean, that's just a a logical truth. And excellence was the goal, uh, certainly for in in ancient Greece and the the Roman Republic and uh, in in the British universities up until very recently. But now uh, excellence is no longer the goal. And and, they no longer require testing. And the SATs are now... Uh, going down the board, and, and the whole idea of educational excellence is being attacked as somehow racist, which is ridiculous. I mean, the way the way you help children in life is to help them uh, become learned, become vigorous educationally, to take difficult subjects, and and not to just rely on getting through. Joe. Jo, Last question, uh, the big question. Is the American government capable of addressing this, or is it just too implicated in all the waning conditions to help? Yes, I, I, I don't, I agree with Ronald Reagan. I don't think government is the answer. Government is the problem. But what, but what, what, what can we do then? Go back to federalism. The, the, the government, the federal government, has gotten way, way, way beyond its capabilities. You have these enormous agencies, this massive administrative state, uh, consisting of these agencies that combine executive, legislative, and, and judicial powers, vastly staffed with people who who they 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 just can't successfully manage everything they they've taken on. And this goes back to Hayek. They don't have the information that millions of people have on their own to solve their own problems. And it, government simply cannot amass the amount of information necessary to solve all of those problems. You have to leave that up to the people themselves. And that's why our founders set up a democratic republic and a federal republic. The basic control ought to be among people, local communities, and states, not in the federal government. That way, the people themselves, I mean, I can call up the city council here in Alexandria or the mayor's office and actually get something done, maybe, maybe. But at the federal level, you can't have any any influence. Well, the, the book is The Decline of Nations, Lessons for Strengthening America at Home and in the World. Joseph Johnston, thank you for joining us. 
Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.